Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the weekly podcast from the Marketing Minds at gconvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today is... Ho, 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 Merry Christmas! Santa Claus. <laughs> Actually, it is just past midnight. It's not technically the Saturday morning before Christmas, but I have done two of my favorite Christmas things already. Uh, one, this evening, my daughters and I made the world-famous Oakley pancake Christmas cookies. It's not a joke. <laughs> the pancake part kind of is. My grandma Oakley and I think her mom before her have always made maple Christmas cookies. The secret ingredient is a product called Mapleine. Canadians, you may have an even better product, but that's what my family has always used. And so it's kind of like a traditional sugar cookie recipe with icing. But instead of whatever flavor that is that I don't really care for, I don't, I'm not a big fan of plain sugar cookies at all. This is maple. So when I make them for people and I ask them, what does it taste like? They don't often get that. They're just like, this is really good. I've never had anything like it. And then when I said, does it kind of taste like a pancake? Remind you of like eating a pancake? They're like, yes, it does. That's why I call them pancake cookies. Anyway, that to me is my favorite part of Christmas is making those family cookies and icing them and cutting them out with the family. So we've done that. And then one of my other more recent favorite Christmas traditions is watching the latest installment of my favorite movie franchise. That's right. Star Wars. And I got to tell you, I loved it. I'm loving The Mandalorian. And so it, there is snow outside too. And so even though it's late in the evening, early in the morning, Thais said, hey, you forgot to record the intro to the very special Christmas episode. And what makes this one so special? Well, we went back and looked at the data and found the top three episodes of 2019 and decided that we would wrap those together. The three best kind of interviews or conversations by you, the listener, count. And so we'll kick off by going back to our interview with the one and only Jeff Shore. And then we will switch over to our interview with Paul Cardis talking about listening to customers and getting feedback and how he started Avid Ratings. And then it's, it's a quasi-interview, but it's a discussion between Andrew and I around conversion campaigns, specifically in for Facebook and Instagram and why that's so important and why... You should have really switched to those about a year and a half, two years ago for Facebook and Instagram. Not necessarily for Google. Sometimes maybe, but most of the time, no. But for Facebook and Instagram, why that's so important and how to do it. So there you go. Enjoy this kind of best of the best for 2019. We will have a new episode for you next week for New Year's. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Have a fantastic holiday season with your friends and loved ones. And... Be on the lookout in the Facebook group and in the LinkedIn group. I'll post my family recipe. And if you guys want to try it out, let me know. Don't let Will, Deuterstad, or anyone else try to tell you this is a waffle cookie recipe because that's, that's a totally different thing. All right, here we go. Let's get started with Jeff Shore. And we're back. 
back with Jeff Shore, the one and the only. This is amazing. It's not just the 50th yes. episode, but we have, no lie, the biggest name in our industry with us please, today as well. Please. You all know <laughs> him. You all love him. I truly think he is, there's no better talent in our industry, not just at speaking and, and training salespeople, but at creating new relevant content on a consistent basis. I think that's his superpower. We'll see what he says later. But Jeff is the founder and president of Shore Consulting. And he, like everyone at Do You Convert, comes with amazing experience behind him. And we're going to dig into that and a lot more. He's not just someone pontificating in the clouds, but he does have that background and, and still at times is on the sales floor himself. Unbelievable. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. That was very, very kind. Uh, uh, thank you, Kevin and Andrew. Appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. We are creators of content as well, but mm -hmm. we're yep. always looking at, I mean, you've written how many books now? Uh, seven, eight. Uh, See, when you lose count, eight. that's when you know you are a, a content mastermind. <laughs> well, the problem is that I have, I have, I have one underworks right now, and uh -huh. one that's being rewritten and updated right now. So I, it oh. it all just sort of jumbles together after a while. Yeah. Yep, it's easy for me. The answer is one, <laughs> and it nearly killed me. It nearly uh, killed yeah, me. but you know, it's but it, uh, do you remember Kevin though when you first opened that? You know, they they shipped you a box of whatever forty books, or whatever. Do you remember uh -huh. opening that box for the very very first time? I definitely do. In fact. It, the first one was the, the press proof of just a single copy. Mm, mm -hmm. And my yep. mom, who I love, she tried to take it to go home and, and read it herself. And I was like, give me that. You are not you do that. as mine. That's <laughs> that's going under glass right there. Yeah. I, I, I got back from nice. a business trip and, and Karen said, you got to go into the garage. I went into the garage and there's a pallet. This is how stupid I am. There's a pallet of 2000 <laughs> copies of the book uh, deal with it, my very first book. And, and I remember just, and Karen was out there with me. I said, you need to leave. I need a, a little time. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was just standing with this pallet and a box cutter in my hand, you know, just just and it took me the longest time just to open it up. And and I'm thinking, what am I? Th I only have five friends on the planet, and they don't want to read this book. What am I going to do with two thousand copies of this book? But my hand was literally shaking when I opened up that first box. But I'll never forget the moment. It was really really cool. And then, do you remember the moment that you saw your first typo or grammatical thing that wasn't caught through the ten proofs? <laughs> about three about three minutes later, <laughs> you mean? <laughs> oh my. Uh, Oh, it's just yeah, I, I still have kept a copy of that first edition of that first book because there, I think that book was uh, updated a few times. But uh, that first copy, oh, my goodness, it was all throughout. It was it's it's I look back, it's funny now. But hey, I had a book. I had a book and people actually bought it. Go figure that. Jeff, do you have a favorite book that you've written? I'm sure you love them all. But is there one that really rings to you like, hey, that's definitely my favorite one? Well, you know, for business purposes, the 4-2 formula is really our it's our curriculum. I mean, it's our the textbook for what it is that we teach. And so many people over the years, when if I'm speaking and they come up and they ask me to sign it, and it's not just that I'm signing the book, but but that I'm signing a copy that has been dog-eared and highlighted and falling apart. And as an author, that that's not there's no greater joy that you have in signing somebody's really well-marked book. But there's no question about it. Um, Be bold and win the sale uh, about comfort addictions in the sales process was so much of a journey. Not just writing a book; it was a it was a life journey that I'm still on. Um, and and I I can't. Can't. That book changed me. It really, really did. And 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 there's more to come on that. Uh, as I'm I'm looking at my goal board right now in my office, and that the whole comfort addiction concept is not. I'm not done on that. I've got more work to do, and I'm really looking forward to it. And that's one that is gonna. If you if you apply those principles, it, it's impossible to keep it confined to the sales arena. Right? Which is why I'm not done. Right? There's a whole <laughs> there's a there's a whole live bold concept out there Ooh. that uh, that that I, I I need to explore. It, it's sort of hey, like. I, Andrew, I, go check, go 
GoDaddy and see if LiveBold.com is already. <laughs> LiveBold. No, I feel like that has to be taken. Anything it's that short, that's simple. Yeah, yeah. It, it's being parked right now. So who wants to buy it? I'm sure it'll be twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Yeah, it might be worth oh, it. Oh my. Well, Jeff, yeah. we often use superhero analogies on this show, and of course, with you, it especially fits and is relevant. Tell us a little bit about Jeff Shore's origin story. How did you get into this crazy business of home building? You know, when I was uh, when I was young in my early twenties, I, I was kind of strange. I, I had I knew I had an entrepreneurial spirit, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I, I was a, really a dreamer without a dream, and everything caught my eye. Everything it didn't matter. I was gonna I was gonna move to New York and write music, <laughs> and I was I mean it didn't matter. I, I was like, I had a, an idea a day, and then uh, I was waiting tables, uh, which is what dreamers without dreams uh, do. I guess. And uh, I, I, it was late at night and I saw this infomercial about how you can get filthy, stinking rich using other people's money buying real estate. And uh, oh. I, I it took whatever money I could sc- scramble together, $200, whatever it was, to go to a conference on how to buy real estate with no money down. And uh, as it turned out, it was all highly illegal and, and uh, <laughs> extremely sketchy. That's why they say <laughs> filthy rich, right? Yeah, that's filthy. right. Exactly. Oh. And, and it's it, the, the guy literally went to jail. I mean, it was just, it was crazy, but mm. it put the taste in my mouth of, uh, of, uh, real estate. And, uh, I started on resale and I was not good at it. I, I was, when I got a client, I was great at taking care of the client, but I was not good at lead generation. Lead generation was just not my thing. It wasn't until I switched over to new home sales and found out that I was, this is going to sound horribly arrogant. Oh, oh, well, I was great at lead conversion. I, I lead mm. generation was not my uh, lane, but lead conversion. When you put them in front of me, man, I was a fish and water. It was really, really great. And I knew that this is it. I, I found my place. This is where I want to stay. Because the builder took a lot of the weight off your shoulders from the Legion. Like people were just walking in the door, right? What year was that when you started working with a builder, roughly? That was, oh, let's see, that would have been 1987. So I'm, I'm old. So new, I'm an old okay. person, everybody. So all I had to do was run that $15,000 full page ad and people walked yes. in the door. That's uh, it's a pr- pretty much the way it worked. And and my first couple of years in the business, uh, most people don't remember this because they're, they're just not old enough to remember this, but the first couple of years in the business, it was a, it was a sharp incline up. It was going, it was going really well. The economy is strong. People were buying homes. And, and I was like, it took no time at all before, you know, I was wearing a nice suit. I had the plaques on the wall. I was driving a, a, a BMW. <laughs> it was all good. And, and if, you know, I'm sure the market had something to do with it, but mostly it was me. And then uh, what happened, <laughs> uh, you know, the market just fell off the cliff. It all went south on us. And, and I was almost out of the industry. I was, it went so bad so fast and I had to completely reinvent. But I'm glad, I, obviously, I'm glad I went through it. I learned things in that tough market that I couldn't learn uh, any other way. And how long did you did you sell new homes in that, that format? Before I lost my brain and went to uh, sales executive leadership? Is that, is that the name? Uh, yeah, it was about, yeah, it was about eight years. Um, oh, and uh, 500 homes or so later and and uh, made the move into uh, uh, sales management. And how about the time frame between being management to going to consultant and trainer. Yeah, I uh, I I was uh, you know the sales leader, VP of sales, that sort of thing, and then I was national sales director for a very very large home builder. I'm not going to mention the name, but the initials K and B are in there somewhere, so you guys <laughs> probably figure it out. Hey, it called- <laughs> Andrew is building a KB home there right you go. now. I there you literally go. had my uh, pre drywall walkthrough like an hour ago. That's that's fantastic. That's great. Uh, and and it, it wasn't called KB at the time. Uh, old schoolers remember it as Coffin and Broad, which was the company that I worked for. 
for. And that was up until uh, 1999 or late 1998 is when I actually left company. Okay. So I was a junior in high school with a twinkle in my eye when (laughs) Jeff was ready to take over the world. So (laughs) what was it that made you decide to take the leap from, from being inside a home builder to trying to tackle making change happen from the outside? Well, it it was interesting. I, I got a taste of training when I worked for the builder. So I knew that I enjoyed it. And I had the opportunity to speak at a couple of home builder conferences. And I was like, oh, oh, oh this is this is fun. And so I, I knew that there was that uh, thought out there, but it really wasn't until there was uh, a big reorganization in the organiza- in, in the company when they bought another builder and there were just too many bodies and not enough chairs. And uh, they offered me a position that I just would not take because it required yet another relocation. I just simply was not going to do it. And I just, we just mm-hmm. stared across the table at the, at the head of HR and uh, we, we started the negotiation. It's like, th- thanks for your uh, 11 years here. Here's some lovely parting gifts. Uh, enjoy the rest of your life. And so uh, it was one of those things where I did not have the guts, frankly, to do it on my own. Uh, but uh, I got a, you know, I, I got a nice severance package and and that sort of uh, staked me into where I was going to go next. I interviewed uh, for a couple of other positions that my heart was not into. And then I just picked up the phone and I, I, I made a couple of phone calls to people that I had worked with who now are populating the leadership staffs at other builders. And before you know mm-hmm. it, oh man, I need, a, I need a fax machine. I need business cards. I got to learn QuickBooks. And uh, I, it, it wasn't like I had gone to a career counselor and said, this is what you need to do. And here are all the steps. I just stumbled into it. And before I knew it, my calendar was absolutely full and I just sort of never looked back. Like all good origin stories, a lot of good drama there, but I, <laughs> I had not heard that entire story. So thanks for sharing it with us. It, it's, it, I look back on it now and I realized that uh, I, I had, uh, I had nine good years at KB and I was there for 11 years. So I was, it was, it was two years uh, too late in the coming, but, and that I don't, I'm not blaming KB on that. That was me. Sometimes it's time to move on. But uh, once again, there's that comfort addiction that sort of locks you in. And I mean, I had three kids. It was a steady paycheck. Uh, there's There wasn't a lot to complain about, but I also knew deep down, this is not what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. We get asked, uh, myself, I feel like maybe more than others, just because they know that I've taken the leap recently. Mm-hmm. But I get asked quite a bit by folks who are still early in their career, even if they're older, they've not been in home building very long, but, but they kind of feel like they're frustrated or see opportunity to go off and do their own thing. And they've only been in the business for, for maybe two or three years. Do you have any advice for them or for people who, I mean, we live in an entrepreneurial time, right? Anyone yeah. has the opportunity and the tools with, with a computer in front of them to do anything. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Well, I think my first piece of advice would be to get lots and lots of advice. I I, I, I think before we make these moves, we sometimes we're not as self-aware as we think we are. And if you have people in your life who are willing to really give you the honest truth, who are really willing to tell you, you know, the truth about what they see in you. And I, I know for me, I remember sitting down with a gentleman by the name of Eric Elder. He had been the senior vice president of marketing for uh, Kaufman and Broad before he went over to a, a great career at uh, Ryland. He's out on his own now. Mm. And we sat down at Jerry's Deli in Westwood, uh, Los Angeles. And I, I remember asking him the question. I was still at KB at the time, but I remember sitting there and asking him the question, um, Eric, if if I ever, now hypothetically, now just, I know this is what, this is stupid, this is stupid, this is stupid. Okay, this is really stupid. But Eric, if, uh, theoretically now, if I ever decided I was going to like go out on my own, on 
my on 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 my own. Do you think anybody would hire me? And and Eric looked at me across the table and he said, first of all, you'd be a fool not to go out on your own. And secondly, call me first because I'll hire you on the phone. And it's it was that piece of encouragement that I really needed to be able to do it. And and then I talked to I actually paid to go to a uh, a career counselor to to say, hey, do I have the skill set? What does this look like? I think too many people just look at it and they go, I have a dream. I have a vision. Well, maybe you have a dream and maybe you have a vision, but do you really know the hard truth about what it's going to be? So so I, I'd say talk to people who are willing to be honest, not to people who are going to give you platitudes. Talk to people who are willing to be honest. And then from there, you got to answer one overriding question, especially it's one thing if you're going to work for somebody else, but if you're going to out on your own, you've got to be able to ask the question, how do I get revenue? And that was one piece of advice that I got early on was you're going to want to, you know, you're going to want to learn QuickBooks. You're going to want to design your own cool logo. You're going to want to do all this stuff. Forget it. Get revenue, get revenue, get revenue. If you cannot figure out your path to revenue, it is the lifeblood to what it is that you're going to do if you're a startup. If you can't get revenue, you don't have a company. And I think a lot of people, when they think about going out on their own, they think about all the cool ins and outs of what they want to do. And they stop short of really understanding how they get revenue. That was, that's, that's yeah. the magic potion. And, and one of the cool things that you get to do from my own experience is you get to go shopping for groceries at four different stores, right? I mean, when I, when I, when I made the leap to come to do you convert, I was going to Aldi for some things, Walmart for another target and then Kroger, because it was just, how do we live on a number? Because before revenue comes in, mm-hmm. you also have to be willing to eat dirt as some people uh, say, right? Just mm-hmm. control those expenses. And, and if you're not willing to make that type of commitment, then that's probably another sign that there's yet more work to do. But, but that's the way it should be, Kevin, right? It's the idea that if it's, if there's no cost involved, then it's not worth anything, right? That's, that's uh, Thomas Paine once said that, which is easily attained as lightly esteemed. When you have to pay the price, man, there's, there's, uh, there's something appreciated about that, that you're not going to get in any other way. Awesome. We asked this question, um, to almost all our guests, if we, if we remember, um, what is your superpower? In, in other words, what do you think you do best? Well, those are two different questions. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> superpower. I don't know about superpower. You can give two answers. Uh, yeah, two answers. Okay. <laughs> That's our right, three answers. Anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, it's it's always weird because it sounds arrogant, but uh, I'll just say it anyway. I, I think I have exceptionally good um, short-term problem-solving skills. I, I think I can size up a situation in a hurry and offer a, a reasonably sound solution. And that skill is really, really critical when you're in a consulting or training environment where you, you just never know what you're going to have to deal with, what's going to be thrown your way. Um, but I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty cool under that problem-solving uh, pressure. But I think the other thing is that I'm I'm just a very curious person. And I, I don't know if I would call that a superpower. I would call it something that I'm absolutely dedicated to, but I like to study and and I know how to repurpose the work of uh, people who are much smarter than I am. So uh, I can read something really wonky and deeply scientific by somebody like, you know, one of my heroes, Daniel Kahneman, mm-hmm. the founder of behavioral economics, or, you know, uh, you know Dan Gilbert or, uh, you know, Martin uh, Lindstrom, any of these guys, and then repurpose it for application to the sales industry. Yeah. Because most of these guys, they're not sitting around thinking about what does this concept mean to sales? And so if I can step in and stand in the gap and I give them credit for the thought uh, and and how they spur me on, but I like to think that I can take what they are saying, grit my head around it, and then make it approachable for everyday practitioners. And that's the gap that I love standing in. And I completely agree that that is something you do really, really well because it's, and, and it sounds very, even it didn't sound arrogant at all because it, when you say it, it sounds very simplistic, right? I'm just taking 
a thought that one person had and proven science and I'm <laughs> filling that gap. But that gap is not, it's a Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls kind of gap and people don't know how to cross it. Well, I've learned that even in in my podcast, The Buyer's Mind, where I'm talking to, uh, oftentimes to, you know, neuroscientists and, and uh, you know, uh, 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 behavioral economists and, and they write these extremely wonky white papers that have all of these charts and graphs that I can't begin to understand. And and then you look at and you go, you guys have, you're sitting on gold mines out here, but it's not approachable. There's mm-hmm. no way to be able to apply this to the real world. And and that's what I at least try to do is step in and, and find that connection. And, and I find it so thrilling. I find it so mentally stimulating to be able to take those concepts and turn them over. And in fact, you know, in, in the 4-2 formula, we teach, we teach this formula that people buy when their current dissatisfaction times their future promise is greater than their cost plus their fear. So we, that that is the fundamental aspect of what we teach in the 4-2 formula. Well, that started in reading a Harvard Business Review article when I was in college. I still have that textbook I could point back to. And it was a it was actually a, a formula that the guy was writing about organizational change. And I said, mm. you know, if you tweak this and you change this over here, and then I just sort of put it up against the sale and it just never failed. I could identify why anybody buys anything according to the formula. And it started by reading a Harvard Business Review article in college. And to this, and I think I didn't really realize at the time where that was going to lead, but I still do that today. I, there, there are a lot of people that are much smarter than me. And uh, frankly, they need my help in taking <laughs> this and making it approachable uh, into the sales world. That's so interesting, Andrew, how that sounds exactly from it, a different side, what we're trying to do when it comes to digital marketing. Yeah, it yeah. is. Exactly. It is. Without, because you can't water it down too much because then no. like you really lose important, especially, you know, of course, I'm not as familiar with the sales side, but on marketing, there's a lot of nuances where you can't leave out those details and understanding and understanding the context of, say, the data or why this platform works this way versus that way. Um, sure. You kind of have to know the detail, but it needs to be easy. You have to bridge that gap where it's actually understandable by, say, mm-hmm. leadership to understand how Google ads work versus Facebook ads in just spending the money. Mm-hmm. Is That could be like, a, I think we had this conversation this week. It's like a 20-minute conversation just saying, how do we spend Google money versus Facebook money? Yep. Definitely a challenge. And you have to make it easy so that they make the change. Sure. But then you also have to go circle back around. That you do. And so that's why people like me pay people like you <laughs> because we look at it and we go, I don't I don't know how this, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. I don't want to have to go figure out the the, the efficacy of, of, a, of a Google ad versus a Facebook. I don't want to know that. You tell me. You're smarter than me in this. You figure it out. Okay. Now you've led me down a path that I, I have to ask this question, which is sure. how, how do you feel inside when someone's reaction to you sharing that is one of complete and utter disappointment of, I thought you were just going to make this super, like I thought I was paying money just to solve my problem, but I still have to apply myself to it. Do you, maybe you don't see that at all, but I'm just curious how you, yeah, sure we do. is that frustrating? Is it sad? Does it make you angry? What, what, how, what kind of emotions rise up? Yeah. I think the, co- the corollary there is when we're working with a client who thinks that a one day training session is going to fix all of their problems. Yeah. And so for me, it's, it's really a matter of the pre-work and understanding and being gutsy enough to say to a customer or a potential client, we are not the solution for you. We are, we are simply not going to be able to give you what it is that you are looking for. And so early on, right, it's just, when you're a new business, you just, hey, just take the business, whatever it is, mm-hmm. just take the business. Mm-hmm. And then what you end up with is a business that's based on transactions, but it's not based on transformations. And I'm just, at this point, it's been 20 years for me at Shore Consulting. I, I have no interest in taking that job anymore. It's just, it's not stimulating. It's not fun. It's not rewarding for anybody. And so, uh, you know, but but that's the idea. That it's, this, it's the exact same concept uh, is that I, if I can prevent 
prevent that from happening up front, I'm a happier guy. And I think ultimately my clients are better served when I say no than when I say yeah. Yeah, it was a completely selfish question that may not make sense even to put on air. But to me, <laughs> you know, we're happy to take your money and to just perform great digital marketing services for you. But that's, it, like you said, it's not fulfilling to me. I, it's always shocking when someone whose title is director of marketing for a home builder says, yeah, I don't need to know how the sausage is made. Just make sure that it's made, it's made really well and I look mm-hmm. good for it. And I'm, I'm always just surprised by, don't you want to know your own contribution? Don't you want to increase your contribution and value to the organization and grow? And But there's just a lot of people who don't have interest in doing that. Well, the corollary here, and I think it is worth airing, quite frankly, uh, is, is the sales manager who doesn't attend the sales training that we would put mm. on or that any company puts mm. on. Right on. Uh, yeah. I, I look at that and I, I just go, you got to be kidding me. Uh, how could you be so detached and so disinterested to not want to know what your people are being taught? And of course, then any thought of coaching uh, after the fact, it's it's dead in the water. It's right. never going to happen. We, we, we want nothing to do with that type of organization. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, get back on track. So when I was on mm-hmm. The Buyer's Mind or we recorded The Buyer's Mind uh, last week, you asked me this question. So I want to flip it back to you because I, I want to hear your take on it. In your opinion, what do you think the difference is between marketing and sales today's world? So, all right, the tables just got turned on me here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, by the way, you, you, were, you were fantastic on that show. That was such a good interview. I loved it. It was a blast. Uh, you know, look, if I I know that it's 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 going to be oversimplified, but I would look at it and say that I, I think marketing is about lead generation and sales about lead conversion. Mm-hmm. So I'm not into the idea of marketing as this catch-all that includes, you know, branding and image and design as ends unto themselves. So no, I don't just, I think that no company should ever care about branding except that it leads you to an opportunity to sell something. Mm-hmm. And I I know that means that I see the whole entire world through a sales lens. I get that. But I think small companies get this wrong a lot. They go for cool, for cool's sake. But if marketing cannot take a neutral observer and turn that person into a lead, they're wasting their time. So I, I look at it from that that oversimplified uh, perspective. Marketing generates leads, sales converts leads. Same lens that we see it too. I mean, I didn't give you that, okay. that same answer on your show, knowing the audience yeah. mm-hmm. of your show, but we completely agree. In fact, we were just talking last week about one of the questions we got at the show, which was, are you saying that branding is not as important? And one of the first things... It's a sensitive things, question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sensitive question because <laughs> that's more fun and, and happy and right. quote unquote challenging, even though it's relatively easy. You look at colors and you say, I like that one. And then you have to create all sorts of false psychological reasons why that is uh, more powerful and worth the millions of dollars to, to change it all. Of course, my now my sarcasm is coming out full, full bore. But one of the first things I have to teach a marketing person when I'm coaching them is you need to understand that I think the view that you just said, Jeff, was not from a sales perspective. It's from an ownership. It's from a entrepreneur, a I'm paying something and I want a return on my investment perspective. And mm-hmm. if marketers don't understand that, that, that that is how they're being judged and will be judged for all time. It's not just the CFO. It's it's anyone with a C in front of their title mm-hmm. expects a return on their investment and colors and branding and stories don't cut it. That's right. When's the last time somebody came up to you and said, hey, cool branding, here's a hundred dollars. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. So do you see any common dysfunctions between sales and marketing that either yourself, your team here when working with builders, you know, all across the the country? How much time do we have? We we could spend a little. Really? The question behind the question, Jeff, is you get in deeper, way deeper on the sales end than we ever do. So inside of that Mm -hmm. circus tent, what are they really saying about us? Yeah. (laughs) Well, look, I, I think what it really comes down to is that uh, the, 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 and, and this isn't exclusive to sales and 
marketing. We see it with sales and operations, sales and land acquisitions. We see it over and over again. And it's thinking that ultimately that the sale is about the home itself or about the neighborhood or about the builder or about the features without stopping to, to constantly reset with the idea that everything, everything must be seen through the eye of the customer. So I'll give you an example of that. I was uh, I was in Charlotte. I was working with a builder. We pulled up to one of their community. We did a, a community tour. We went to several different builders, but we went to their own community and we, we were on this little, you know, those little mini buses there. Mm-hmm. And we get off the bus. There's there's mm-hmm. ton of us managers and we're standing um, across the street from their model home. And I'm asking them, so just on first impression, just be a buyer right now. What what, what, what are you thinking? Are, do, do you like what you see? Do you not like what, what? Tell me what your first impressions are. And they're sitting there going, nice. Well, we like it. It's good. It's good design. It's good architecture. It's good lines. It's clean. And, you know, so I said, great, good. Now do me a favor. Count the signs. <laughs> Count oh the signs. How many? So yeah. we had the main ID sign and we had the parking sign and then we had a handicap accessibility sign and we had two different signs on the front door. And then the ar- alarm company had a little posted sign there and the land com- landscape company on the sign and the model sign. We counted from where we were standing, we counted 10 signs as soon as you got out of your car. Yep. Oh and so goodness. we just look at it and we go, what, what, what are we trying to, what message are we trying to send here to our customer right from the very beginning? Uh, it, it, this is not about your experience. Uh, it, it's about what we have to just throw in your face. Yep. So this is one simple example, but it, it's an example of, you know, this is all about the home, the product, the features. It's just, it just jam, jam, jam down your throat without really thinking through what is the customer experience? What does that look like? So I, I would I would say that, the, that this all gets sort of wrapped up into the idea of the disconnect between seeing this about the, the builder, about the brand, about the home itself without looking at it through the eyes of the customer. Just yesterday, I was in Las Vegas working with a builder, went into a model home right across the street from this model home in this brand new community in the, in the vacant lot that was right directly across the street, all of their roof tiles and a bunch of <laughs> building materials stacked up. Now, they had they had lots everywhere through the community, but the builder decided that that was a good place to be able to put all of their spare materials. And I look at it and I go, is it like it is a deal killer? Maybe, maybe not. But to me, that's not a builder construction issue. That's a marketing issue. Uh-huh. That's the idea that we are not paying attention to the impressions that will cause somebody to want to move from an interested party into an actual buyer. I, like a moth to a flame, I have to ask you this question mm-hmm. too. Uh, sales sheets for individual inventory homes strewn out across the kitchen island. I was a builder two days ago and walk in the walk into the model. It feels good, looks good. It's all good until I reach the kitchen and then I feel like a filing cabinet threw up. There's just yes. transactional information with factual data all over the place. How would you feel about that? And, and I would say in the freaking kitchen? Exactly right. I mean, some people suggest, some people <laughs> suggest that the kitchen is a fairly important room in the house. Now, look, I'm no genius on this, but where uh, do you want the eyes going? It, it is just, it, it uh, it's insane. But listen, I feel the same way about sales offices. I don't think it has to be just in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I walk into sales offices all the time and it's the same thing. It's like, how much data, how many information points can we put up on our walls? If, oh, wait a minute. I just found eight square inches over here. We could get something in there. And it's all just an assault on the senses uh, after a while. And your customer cannot begin to take it all in. They don't have the cognitive strength uh, to take in as much data as we throw at them. And Andrew, you talk about this all the time. Even if the brand is great and you understand the story of the builder, if your current dissatisfaction can't be met, the brand doesn't matter. So why put all that money and effort into that when at the end of the day, it has to meet their current dissatisfaction or they move 
move on. Mm-hmm. All right. For those who stuck around to the end, let's get nerdy here. Are there any particular... Both of you. Both of you. <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> Are... Exactly. Are there any particular psychological insights that you've discovered over your career that you think marketers in general are not doing a good job implementing or using? Things that you teach salespeople that when you look on the mm-hmm. other side of the fence, you're like, hmm, I wonder why they don't, don't do that. Call us out. Yeah. Makes sense. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I think... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if there was an umbrella to the, all that, it would it would it would fall under two words, and the words would be cognitive ease. It, it's we tend to think. I think I think we in marketing we look at it. We go the more information we can throw at you, the better off we're going to be. And it it just uh, confuses the brain. And and I think we know this through psychological research that a confused mind is going to say no. It doesn't know how to process it all. So the idea of just trying to keep things clean and easy, and not trying to in it inundate because what happens is all of those data points that we're throwing out there are appealing to the logical side of the brain. Well, that's a problem because the brain doesn't, or the, not the brain, but the gut is where the decision gets made, right? The Swedish researcher Martin Lindstrom, 85% of the decision is made in the gut. It's supported by a 15% rationalization in the brain. So when we're just throwing the data out there, we're, we're literally taking customers away from the part of their soul that's, that's going to make the decision in the first. It doesn't make any sense uh, to try and say, this is interesting. Here you go. This is interesting. Here you go. Uh, unless it helps the customer to be able to step into their own future. So I, I think it's the the idea that it's what is sometimes called the any benefit theory. Is there any benefit to my customer knowing this? Oh, there is. There is. There's any benefit. Great. I'll throw it out there. But we don't stop and think, is the benefit uh, that we're going to get that small as it might be worth trumping the emotional connection that they really need to have in order to make a decision? I, I don't Is this making sense? Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, Every yeah. home builder that we visit, for the most part, when you look at the standard feature sheet, the included feature sheet, whatever magical word they want to use for this piece of paper that has 189 different bullet points on it, one of which is a doorbell and another is a mailbox. Right. Thank you. That's a doorbell. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> and, and even worse, the only thing worse than that is when you have extra columns next to each one of those points to encourage them to go to their competitors and say, do you also have a doorbell and a mailbox? That's the only thing worse. <laughs> Preach, <laughs> preach the dare to compare worksheet. Uh, it, it just drives me up the wall. You want to you want to load cognitive strain onto your customer. That's the ticket. The dare to compare worksheet mm-hmm. drives me crazy. Yep. Yep. OK, we are out of time, but I want to quickly go to jeffshore.com to learn about everything that Jeff and his team are, are doing around the country and, and how they're helping builders and other industries, even outside of home building. But there's something coming up in August called the Sales Leadership Summit. And this is, why have you done this uh, a long time now? Seven, eight, nine years? Yes, keep going. I think we did. I think I did my first one with uh, 35 managers in a small little uh, meeting room in Las Vegas uh, back in 2005, 2000. It was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've been been doing this a long time, but it keeps getting just, uh, I don't know, I say better and better would be arrogant, but funner and funner. And I know funner isn't a word, but it should be something. Are you saying this is the most dramatic rose ceremony ever? You know, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it, it does, though. It gets better. Better because uh, it's, yeah, we find the same thing in our event. Our event gets better, not necessarily because we are getting better at you convert or because we're bringing in other speakers that are better. It's because when you go yeah. to the same event over and over again, you have a different experience of that event because you that's right. You can now you don't have that same cognitive strain on your brain. That's right. You know the room, you know the presenters, and you can absorb it in a different and better way. And look, if you're a sales leader, look, you need to get out of your office for a couple of days anyway, just for the purpose of of getting a little sanity back into your life. But 
when you can meet with builders all around the country, when you can go in intentionally uh, with the idea to work with your peers from not just around the country, we have people from around the world. We've had people from the Middle East and Australia and uh, uh, come to the summit and just to be able to pick their brain and to be able to learn from them. The relational connections are amazing. Uh, this year, we're doing a little different. We brought in a, uh, a professional MC. He's he's in the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame, a gentleman by the name of Brian Walter, because I really wanted to ramp up the fun factor this year. It's we're, We've got rock solid content of that, I assure you, but we're not going to be afraid to have a little fun this year as well. Awesome. I have attended before. It is definitely worth your time and investment. And there's really nowhere else, again, back to the content that you guys have focused on. When it comes to sales leadership in particular, uh, who else is going to have available content and experience? There's just, there isn't. All right. Well, that takes us to the end. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us and giving us your valuable, valuable time today. That was really, really fun. I, I had a great time. Thank that you. That was awesome. Absolutely. Any yeah, parting you, message for sales leaders or for marketing leaders around the country who may be listening? Uh, it's not about the home. It's about oh, the customer. I thought you were going to say change your world. Live bold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not about the home. It's about the customer. So live it's bold and change your world. There we go. That's wow. Jeff Shore. That's awesome. Here. We're back with Paul Cardos, the founder and CEO of Avid Ratings. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Kevin. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. And those of you regular listeners know that Paul made a guest, uh, a short guest appearance on our live recording at the Online Sales and Marketing Summit in Dallas this year. Mm -hmm. But this one is all about Paul, his company, and what they do to help builders and why that is so important. So we're kind of tongue-in-cheek saying the title of this 360 is, are you listening to your customers for real? Like for real, real? <laughs> or are you just... <laughs> listening to make sure they're not cursing your name or are you really listening to the to the deeper conversations that they're trying to have you? Um, Paul, just as a, a quick introduction, why don't you tell us kind of geographically where you're based out of and, and what Avid Ratings is all about? Sure. So uh, we're based out of Madison, Wisconsin. That's our headquarters. We have offices in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as Toronto, Canada. And uh, we've been around now. This will be our 27th year of working with home builders to measure and improve the customer experience. Wow, that's a that's a long time. My friend. Yeah, I had it no is. idea. 27 yeah, years. 27 years. I know. It feels like yesterday, to be honest, guys. It, uh, yeah, I jumped in. I was a graduate student here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was in the PhD program, and um, I had a buddy of mine bring me a survey. Uh, he worked for a builder. Lexington Homes, I believe, was the company back then. They, uh, we were down in Chicago, and he said, hey, um, you know, help me. I'm getting this survey about my customers. And he was a project superintendent and a very good childhood friend. And so I, I, uh, I took the time, worked with him, and, and look at the survey and, and I realized, you know, wow, this is interesting. You know, here it is, you know, the number one purchase that people are going to make uh, affects them deeply. Uh, and, uh, and and yet they're really just starting to get some measurement around what the experience is like. And this is 1992, you know, and it took off and we've had, you know, quite an interesting, uh, you know, ups and downs. We got to ride out the last uh, huge downturn. Well, but that's history now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is history now. Now it's a good story to tell. You don't have to live, live it anymore, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's hope not anyway, correct. Uh, but it's definitely been um, a great run. I, I really enjoy working with home builders. You know, people, um, hey, why don't you go into other industries? And we never made that decision because we really enjoy housing. What's interesting, Paul, is that about, I would guess, guesstimate half of the people that I work with or more now of all the builders around the country have were not around, did not experience mm -hmm. it. Not just because they weren't in home building, but they just weren't of age to be working during the Great Recession. I'm raising my hand over here just, to that. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it's fascinating because that's that means that we are officially the old yes, guard. Uh, like you said, Paul, you feel like you're dating yourself, but now it's kind of like I'm 37 and I'm one of the I'm I'm like the old guy who remembers back in the day when you walked up uh, walked to school uphill both ways. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. <laughs> <It's> strange. <laughs> yeah, it happens fast, and um, but it it truly is um, uh, a different day now, right? When you talk about where the industry has been, where it's going, I think we're finally getting digital. You know, we're finally really getting modernized and the customer experience is now paramount for a home builder more so than it ever was. And um, for us, I guess we were we were lucky enough to had gotten in very, very early when there were no Google ratings. There was no Yelp, right? We watched the emergence of these technologies and sites and transfer knowledge and, uh, and Zillow, right? So take us back to that time, Paul. Um, I, 1992, yeah, yeah. you said, is when you started? So what was, I mean, that was, be, was the calculators were around <laughs> then, I think. Yeah. Um, dot matrix printers. Yeah, how did you collect but, the reviews? So I, yeah. Well, good news, guys, is mathematics has been around for a very long time, uh, as well as <laughs> surveys. They've been along for a lo- around a long time. Survey research was my area of specialty. I was the kid at the grad, the grad student who the professors used to line up at the door to have crunch the numbers. So I was trained up on the old SPSS, SAS. So for some of the old folks on the call, they'll remember those software platforms. But that's how we crunched. And the computer was new. I remember uh, we weren't, you know, punching the cards. I was post the whole, you know, data cards, but I remember mm-hmm. the data cards and I remember seeing yeah. the old big, you know, mainframe rooms and all that stuff. And then, but then the microcomputer came out. So my, I really cut my teeth with the first, when Microsoft came out and the first statistical SAT programs were released and I got really into it. And I was literally writing code for SPSS and SAS and, um, and those codes would, would run and crunch the numbers. Okay. And so it was paper and pencil back then. Scanning was around, you know, we had the old Scantron sheets. So if you were you were really cool, you had a Scantron sheet <laughs> and people filled in a bubble and you got those scanned, which was helpful. But even then, really, it was paper and pencil and you hand you hand entered it in because there was no text recognition. You you just had to hand key it in. Um, but we were, yeah, we were working <laughs> on early Windows when Windows was the, you know, really the main operating system that, that, it, that existed. And you said your friend reached out to you to have you look at the survey. But once you started the business itself, did you have to convince, I mean, were builders looking for that service? Were they already using something else and you were the new kind of better solution? What did that It was like 90% like nobody cared. As my father would tell me, he said, build, builders builders <laughs> were operating by the seat of their pants. He said it was a very much a field of dreams model, you know, build it and they will come and data and research, you know, uh, that was for the more advanced guys, you know, but most of the market just, mm-hmm. you know, they all went on intuition and experience and, uh, and, and customer service. Well, it was, you know, did we fix the problem? That That's the standard, you know, did we answer our phone and were uh-huh. we kind? Uh, we've gone a long way from since then uh, in terms of that. And today I'd say well, back then the 90% didn't do anything on surveys. It was just a few really innovative ones that were like my buddy's company. Uh, and then today it's the complete uh-huh. reversal. Now I would say 90 plus percent of the industry is surveying with somebody, whether it's us or somebody else. I mean, yeah. you know, I think you would agree there's, there aren't many out there aren't surveying right now. Yeah, they're, they're all trying it some way, not necessarily the best way, but they're all trying to get their arms around it. For, for me, I remember I was at Miranda Homes here in Columbus. We were doing around 800 homes a year. And the, the regional VP at the time started to become interested in, in asking about surveys and our opinions on the survey process, which we were doing, but then they didn't really go anywhere. Once there 
was a rumor mill. This is probably 2004. The rumor mill was that JD Power was going to get into the home builder ratings business. And so then there was some concern about, you know, if this comes to our market and we have the ratings we have now, we're, we're toast. Yeah, that so was it, kind of that, that beginning of starting to care a little bit more for Right. Apple. In fact, that was a watershed moment for our company. You know, prior to from 92 to 97, 97 is the year JD Power came in, I remember, um, because it was uh, it was a dark day for me when that happened. And I was really worried that it was over. I remember calling my dad saying, well, it's been a fun run. You know, the big guys are in and you know, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll be hanging them up soon. And, uh, you know, uh-huh. and, you know and he said, Paul, that's not the case. He was very wise about it. And he said, no, I don't agree with you at all. I think if anything, they're going to validate what you're doing. And uh, so the season pro taught the young kid. I mean, my 20s, I didn't know really much. And he really did. He, he, he nailed it. Right. And that's exactly what happened is that they validated and they created the fear and builders that, oh, my gosh, this we can't ignore it. We can't just, you know, bury our cat customer sat or lack thereof. We, we got to do something about it. And so all of a sudden our mm-hmm. phones were ringing. We good. When did you start seeing things go digital? I, I think that it, it really happened around the, the Google and Yelp period. I mean, that that really was the digital movement. And and, and it really, I, I know this is going to sound terrible, but it wasn't until this decade that our builders really finally woke up, right? So from 97 all the way uh-huh. till I'm going to tell you, through into 2012, right? We basically were non-digital as an industry. Uh, and, wow. uh, and it was a nice thing yeah. to have. It wasn't I need to have it. Gotcha. Uh, do, you th- do you still think they're waking yep. up if you could have like a percent of builders that get it, if that, that's in quotes, that really get it? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're not everybody's there yet, but I think uh, I predicted that it was going to be 2015 was going to be the year we finally had the big uh, you know, wake up call and the industry really transitioned to transparency, I called it. Um, I was wrong. It, it wasn't 15 and actually more was like this last year and uh, in 18. That's when I think we really saw builders didn't fight us on it anymore. You know, the arguments of well, I can't push out my reviews. I might have a bad review out there. Uh, that was kind of the hallmark argument that builders would use to, yep. to not participate in a digital review process because, you know, uh, or they went with services that they could only push out their positive reviews, which was legal uh, up until really the end of 2016. And uh, and so this last couple of years has been tectonic in terms of our industry. I mean, it's really an amazing story that I'd like to share with you guys on what happened, the federal legislation that came in and just everything that changed in the last two years. Yeah, let's do it. Because I think that's a big, the mm-hmm. big part of it is how can you trust those reviews? And it's one thing to see a star rating or a number or some nice comments that was, that's been around forever. I remember making books for model homes of here's the happy homeowner stories in a, in a book. Um, so that, that, that idea has been around a long time of third party validation. But I think a lot of what you've been involved with from the legislation side has really gone another level in terms of generally, can I trust or not trust what I'm seeing? So yeah, in 2012, as the Googles were coming online, as the uh, star ratings uh, online were becoming a thing, the Yelps and everything were starting to get into our space and evaluate builders and JD Powers became very irrelevant, right? Uh, and that really happened in the mid 2000s and then just sort of accentuated. It, it went dark during the downturn yeah. for a little bit and then they pulled out in 2010, literally JD Powers said, we're out of here and they shut down the home building division. Yeah. And that was a big, big day for us. So then we were all like, okay, the gorilla's gone. Now, now what? And then, you know, Google and Yelp and, and these other rating sites started filling the voids very slowly, but they surely did. And with that came out services that said, hey, by the way, uh, we will go ahead and review your customers and only push out your happy customers. You can use our platform to digitize this process and we will actually make you guys look great. We even had companies out there that said, why don't we 
go out there and put in falsified reviews for you that make you look good. Mm. And so there were services like that that are happening quite rampant. And many of our home builder clients uh, actually turned us off and said, you know, Avid, unless you can do what these guys are doing, we're not going to do this. And we looked at it yep. and 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 our stomachs turned. Uh, all of a sudden, what we what we were trying to do, which is really be the leading resource for building quality and help transform this industry, was now completely subverted. Um, I candidly was about ready to sell the company. Um, I, I really could not stomach the thought of, you know, making bad builders look good um, and hurting the yeah. industry because I came from it. My father, you know, has been going to International Builders Show going back into the 60s. Um, you know, I I, I have a, I had a, a, a much better viewpoint of who we are as an industry and all our good clients that we had uh, to know now that all this hard work they put in was really now for naught because, you know, their competitors who were really quite bad could just falsify uh, or, or game the system. It was really hard, uh-huh. really, really hard, guys. And and there were dark days. And so we, we held our line, though. That's just something I'm very proud of, that we never went in and sub- or subverted to uh, or, or submitted to the to the review gating, the filtering, uh, all the games that were being played to just basically yeah, yeah the, the washing, the washing yeah of reviews. We just wouldn't do it, and we lost business. And on top of the recession, we lost business because of that. Because one of our key competitors was a major part of their platform was the ability to do that. So um, you know, we got down to you know, really is getting late in the game here, about fifteen now, two thousand fifteen. Now I'm really starting to wear out. I'm really starting to feel the pain of this. Even though the market's recovering, it was recovering, and that was great. But builders were still turning to the easy path. I like to say I was selling, you know, medicine for for curing uh, their problems uh, and they were selling crack cocaine, you know, and it was really, really hard to compete with that. You know, um, yeah. I just, you know, I had, I had, yeah, I had term. aspirin and they had, the they had, term. they had yeah. co- cocaine and it's just really hard to, to compete. But then all of a sudden I got, uh, I, I, I got uh, an email from one of the lobbyists that was mentioning that there's a bill coming out on this issue of reviews. Uh, and, uh, and I reached out then to NAHB um, and I believe Darren Powers was his name at the time. Anyway, he, he, I think he's passed now, but he um, was very instrumental in connecting me with Washington on this bill. So apparently Daryl Issa, congressman, was pushing out a bill because this was not just our industry was suffering. Uh, all, all industry was suffering right. from mm-hmm. the integrity of falsified reviews back in this 15, uh, 2015 going into 2016. And so a bill was put on the floor, um, a Republican sponsored bill called the Consumer Review Fairness Act. And lo and behold, uh, it, it started a whole process. Um, and now the discussion started happening uh, at the highest levels of our government about, is this the right thing to do? Or should we allow coming? Because frankly, they weren't breaking the law. It was perfectly legal for you to falsify your reviews. You wanted to filter your reviews. I mean, basically it's the Wild West and there's and they were not breaking the law. It was just ethically, it didn't feel right. That's the only standard that was there. And this reminded me of the 1920s when we had truth in advertising issues, right? Where you could have ads that claimed, hey, pour this tonic on your head and it'll grow your hair back or, you know, make you grow two inches. And uh-huh. it was all false, right? So then we had truth in advertising, which is a standard congressional act that was passed to uh, clean it up and, and it, it transformed commerce and we have consumer protection rights. So, but here we are, you know, back to that again. Uh, and uh, you could do whatever you want in the review. So clearly something needed to be done. FTC got involved and FTC started passing some guidelines to try and put some things around it. And and then the federal law came through and we got active. Um, I met with uh, Paul Ryan here in Madison, the Speaker of the House at the time, and uh, provided him with some insights as to what we thought. Uh, Angie's list, uh, Angie Hicks was involved. Yelp was involved. In fact, they got called the Yelp law for a while there. It was starting to be. So everybody who 
was in our space, the big boys and the little guys like us were all now, you know, in favor of this because our, our industry literally was crumbling from beneath our feet. And uh, we went from an industry of an integrity yeah. to a complete sham. And uh, nobody was feeling good about it. Nobody that was worth anyway. And uh, so we all got behind it. Um, and uh, and we were hoping the bill was going to be passed. And then it failed. And in 2016, we could not get the bill passed. Uh, the election came up. We assumed uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win. And we, we basically all packed our bags and said, OK, well, we'll wait for the, the new president and the new Congress and we'll address it in future years. And we literally, I remember going uh-huh. into December um, and I had closed the books on you know, all my efforts with this thing and the lobbying and the support and the writing of the articles and all of that. And uh, and then I got a call in mid-December uh, from our lobbies. He said, you're not going to believe it, but the bill just passed. And I said, how can that be? The Congress is in lame duck session. You know, the, the you know Clinton lost. and or, I'm sorry, no, uh, sorry, no, Obama. It was Yeah, Clinton lost, but Obama was still in power right through December. So we we're in the lame duck session. And and then uh, and then I guess one of the last things he did before he left was um, he pulled together a clandestine group of the congressmen. He pushed it up and he signed it and it went into law. Consumer Review Fairness Act, which is the first law in our in our um, uh, country's history that addresses customer reviews. Now, it, it's watered down. It's full of holes. There's problems with it. It's not perfect. Sure. But it was sure. our first bill <laughs> and it did and it did change things dramatically. Now, finally, it set a standard, at least that we could all and, and it showed that there was national attention here and, and it gave the FEC strength. And so since that passage, now we've seen an immense change. Um, but interestingly enough, the, that was passed in December of 16. Uh, so go ahead. Yep. This is my favorite part of the story. Yeah. Sure. So so I was then, you know, thinking, hey, I won, you know, I'm dancing in the end zone thinking, great, we got something here. But uh, I learned real quick that law didn't matter. <laughs> That, that nobody cared. And and, uh, and I kept talking about the law and everybody just sort of yawned. And, and it was it was really getting zero attention and zero change in the market. FEC started prosecuting, got a little bit of attention, but still nothing really. And so we passed through 2017, very little changed. Our competitors were still doing what they were doing before. They didn't even care. It was really amazing. And then 2018, April of this past year, Google finally comes out and says, okay, if you are review gating this is the term they used, review gating, where you are gating your negative reviews to go to nowhere land and only allowing your positive reviews to go to Google star ratings, which is essentially cheating mm-hmm. the reviews, right? It's not a fair representation. They will ban you now from Google. And this this edict got put out in April of last year. And then all of a sudden, everything changed. Now, all of a sudden, the, the, clients, or the clients that were doing this started to rethink that. Competitors who were offering that immediately changed their services. Uh, I mean, literally, it all changed. Uh, one of the companies even sold because they just said the owners didn't know what to do. So they just sold the thing. Yeah. And wow. uh, and you had all of them coming out now very much in favor of the, this, new, this new policy. So we don't, you know, we're still seeing signs of it out there. There's a few providers that are still doing it. Really, it are not. And I'm not going to mm-hmm. name names, but they're still out there. But it cleaned up a lot of it. I would say more than half to 60% of all the bad stuff has been cleaned up now quite a bit. Uh, but there's still 40% out there that are on the wrong side of this deal and think it's okay. Okay. But it is. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that part of the story is just federal government passes a law. Yep. Yawn. Google says, hey, we're going to just obviously they can't put you in jail or we're just going to take you off our platform. Everything changes. I think yeah, Google awesome. was the real enforcer. You know, the threat of being off Google. I mean, think of it if you were a builder and oh, yeah, you're not going to be in Google anymore. I mean, you're quite a business, you know. Uh, so have you seen that push kind of some of these uh, nefarious tactics to non Google places? Do you still like is there still corners of the Internet? where if, you know, if someone you really cared about was 
just looking for reviews, you'd say, ah, maybe be a little bit more weary of stuff on social platforms or is or is it kind of helped clean up you know, across the board as providers themselves? Well, no, I, I agree. I mean, remember, Google's just one of the platforms. And so if you go to the other platforms, they don't have those type of restrictions. So you can do whatever you want there. You are still violating uh, FTC, mind you, um, mm-hmm. but there is more nefarious stuff happening in other places. But people are still review gating on Google. I mean, this is the one thing is that Google has been pretty bad on enforcement. Is, is there ban to both the person participating and gating the reviews and the review source? You know, is it is both I, parties? I, under, I understand it's Google My Business. So if you have a Google My Business and of course you're listing your star ratings, <laughs> right? Uh, and yeah. your star ratings are falsified or gated, they would just turn your Google, your business, my business oh, off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that remind, remember, Andrew, this was, this was like four months ago. Andrew showed me a, my business listing where they were using the star oh, emojis yeah. in their title to make it look like they had five star. It was bad. Yeah. And they had five star. I think they even had the most reviews. Like right. they were the obvious choice anyways, but I don't know. It was really bizarre. It, it looked shady. Look shady. They weren't helping themselves. Yeah. yeah. So, so Paul, what would you tell someone who's working for a smaller organization who right now, maybe they don't do reviews at all or like um, it can be tough, especially if you're a younger person in marketing and, and you understand the importance of it, uh, of reviews and, and hearing from the customer. What are the kind of, if you could give them a sell sheet to go to their owner, what would be the, the major themes on that sheet of how do I convince someone who thinks that even if it's free, they just really don't, they think it's a waste of time to go down that road or or if it is has, has some expense tied to it, they just say, eh, let's just buy some more ads instead. Uh, I would say a millennial won't buy a pizza without a star rating. How the heck do you expect them to buy one of your home? Uh, the, the power of the ratings and reviews it's pretty is good, so <laughs> important, right? I mean, uh, there's products I will buy because there's a star difference, right? This one's three stars. This one's four stars. I'm buying the four star product. You know, it is uh, right now the means by which we are validating uh, what this is going, how this is going to feel for me after I buy it. And it works. It, it's flawed. There are certainly bad mm-hmm. reviews. There's falsified reviews. But that, I think, has tightened up now that the system still works, right? And, you know, there are times when you buy a four star product and it doesn't result in a good experience. So there are these events that happen. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you know, when I go to a restaurant and it's got 4.2 or 4.5 review, you know, star rating, I, I have a good meal, right? I have a decent experience or a great experience. So um, it works for most people. And so they still trust it. And so yeah, you awesome. need to have that to sell to these homes because it's a high risk purchase. So it's even more important. Yep, absolutely. And you said 4.2 star ratings. So talk a little bit about is perfection's not required, mm-hmm. right? But every home builder is going to mess up. Everyone's going to mess up. And we've had news articles uh, on other episodes where like statistically speaking, different news outlets have done studies of saying, you know, the biggest impact on reviews is responding, is just responding to each and every one can potentially be as important as having a great rating in and of itself, just showing that you're paying attention and you care. Talk a little bit about how how, how perfect the builders need to be or how scared do they need to be about perfection. Yeah, in fact, perfection is the enemy right now. Uh, if you are in a perfectionist mindset, you're not going to understand today's world. You're not going to function well in this review environment because it is inherently imperfect. It will, you are going to have a bad review. Uh, you hope you don't, mm-hmm. but it will eventually happen. Uh, and you may have many bad reviews at some time too. The point here is that what customers want today is certainty. They want confidence and certainty that you are are making efforts, that you still are good enough, not perfect. And I think that's a di- huge difference for our clients because we come from, I think, some of the older generation, the Xers and the Boomers. We think more in terms of perfection, right? We marketed homes and we did it in a way with, you know, beautiful pictures of, you know, couples and in green grass and, you know, perfect houses, <laughs> everything perfect, 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 right? Because that's the way we did things. Today, everything is genuine focused. Uh, the 
the ads today are not of you know, beautiful pictures and perfect people. Uh, it's now more genuine and real and uh, and flawed. And so, in fact, flaw, I think, is the new authenticity badge. And, and that's what people are looking for. So reviews are really important even when they're bad. When they're bad reviews, this is the moment of truth now. How did we handle it? Exactly. Did we respond? Did we show that we cared and we're trying? Did it resolve in finally getting that buyer's uh, issue taken care of? I mean, those are golden moments as a buyer that we're looking for now. We're saying, you know, hey, I'm okay with that. You know, there's still, as long as you're still good enough and and you're showing that and you have that confidence and certainty through your reviews, you're a winner all the way. And that is what we need to focus on because too many builders are afraid to jump in because they are not perfect. And it's right, because nobody mm-hmm. is perfect. No customer experience is going to be perfect all the time. And it is those uh, those customer terrorists that we've had in our past that we're afraid of that we think they're going to take over. Um, but we need not worry necessarily. I mean, you know, you have to see how bad you are. I mean, there is a watermark. If you're below good enough, and I like to call it the Goldilocks zone, you know, kind of take it from a, an astronomy mm. example, right? Yep. You don't want to be too good. If you're too good, there's another problem. People don't believe it. We had that with one of our first yep. clients who launched. Yep. They were perfect. I mean, they literally, the reason they trusted us to put their star ratings out there is because they were so damn good. Well, guess what? They got a little benefit from it. We, and we were scratching our heads. We we're like, well, this didn't work out so good. And, and it really threw us for a, a loop. Yeah. And then they started getting some bad reviews. And then next thing you know, the salespeople started to see that customers were talking about the reviews and that they were relevant. So it was interesting that the bad review actually is what sold more home for that because it, it created authenticity. That crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. It makes total sense. You guys are going big uh, and scale, not just in terms of employee count and investment and all that. But uh, at the online summit, you talked about working on a partnership with Home Depot or Lowe's. Yes, yeah, we are now in the retail stores. So we're very excited that uh, that Avid wow. is a review supplier for Walmart, Lowe's, Home Depot, Build.com. Whoa, uh, this is what I'm few. talking about. Quite a few Andrew, names like here. Rockstar. We're just going to we're just going to lay out like the eight of the top 10 retail. Wal- say that again. Walmart, Walmart Lowe's, Home Depot, Build.com are now carrying Avid. Uh, oh, Wayfair as well is now carrying Avid in its in its oh, websites uh, for consumers to, re- to read our reviews that we've collected on behalf of our clients. And that's because you have products that are used by home builders where you're getting individual ratings on like a faucet and then that's flowing through to a faucet that you may be able to purchase out on Wayfair yes. or tell me. That's correct. So we're actually helping okay. our building okay. product manufacturers. Builders aren't selling their, you know, they're not selling in Walmart. They're not selling in Home Depot at Wayfair. Right. So obviously right. for the builders, this is a layer down. This is into the product world where with consent of everybody, we're able to uh, curate reviews of products and then those products now are, are then displayed in these uh, retail sites and consumers can review them. That helps our clients though, because they also can put reviews on their websites on products. So imagine if you're a builder now and you want to sell a new Sensate faucet, which is about $1,200 per faucet. It's very expensive. But for some customers, that's you know something they're interested in. Imagine now if you could increase your sales dramatically by including Avid reviews as part of that in your options and design center. So you're saying kind of the reverse flow of obviously you're not buying that faucet at Walmart, but if you it, pull in all the reviews from Walmart, so you have a larger number of reviews about the faucet that the builder can then pull in. So yeah. you're saying? Yeah, we're building the largest database of building product reviews right now in the country and the world, maybe. I don't know. We had uh, Tim Rethlake from, from Heat and Glow and Fireside Hearth and Home Technologies. Their fireplaces are better, but they, they are going to need your rating process to help. So I think it's I think it's awesome. And I'm, I'm trying to think out loud of, you know, Angie's List used to be a great kind of vendor supplier thing, but I feel like all those have either through acquisition, they've all changed or gone away. Like the only place that I really trust ratings and reviews generally would be Amazon, uh, Google, and you guys. And I don't across anything else, maybe JD Powers for cars only, mm-hmm. but I think 
there's this still this huge vacuum of of a trustworthy source to get reviews from because of all the things we've already talked about with uh well, thanks for that last story for me is uh and then, and then we'll then we'll wrap it up we used a, a faucet manufacturer and someone else offered us two hundred thousand dollars up front to switch to their faucets and more uh rebates and and all kinds of great stuff and our purchasing guy was like how can we not do this and the answer was this is eight years ago the answer was because our service cost is going to skyrocket in comparison to what mm-hmm. it is now because we just know that those other faucets have service issues ha- have had them in the past other builders are using them we understand they still have service issues and so the lifetime cost of putting that faucet in is ultimately going to be higher for us because not even talking about brand damage and reputation and all the rest just we don't we don't want to put something in that we f- we know we're going to get more service calls from not a, not not a good, good plan. plan oh I get it well Paul thanks so much for yeah, thanks, taking Paul. the time to, to sit down with us and love love having you on good luck on on the continued growth and success it's exciting to watch really take off like a, a rocket thanks yeah I appreciate it Kevin you guys have always been great supporters we enjoy working with you we um, again we come from within the industry we're only going to do things that are going to help our industry and do it right and grow and, and uh, our core and our values are, are very aligned that way and I'm hopeful that we can help the industry evolve versus be disrupted because if we don't evolve we will be disrupted somebody will come around and thrust this upon the industry and that may not be so pleasant for our clients if they wake up one day and uh, they don't have uh, themselves lined up to succeed. So, you know, I, I agree with you to, to heck with ending on a high note. Let's just end it on. <laughs> I mean, there is no question. The disruption is going to happen. There will just how many of the current players are going to be able to evolve to keep up. Um, but there's no doubt just the raw amounts of money oh, yeah. and energy of people trying to do it, that it, it will happen. It's just, are you going to be adapt enough and be able to adapt quickly enough? Okay, we're back. Everyone's got a refill on their coffee and tea and whatever else. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down exactly what conversion campaigns are. They're not specific to Facebook and Instagram, but they are the solution for the problem of, holy cow, they just took away more targeting options for me. And now am I going to have to spend more money, get lower quality traffic? What's going to happen? They are the answer, but we kind of just want to break down uh, specifically what they are, how they work, what's required, and answer some common questions or confusing points that are likely to get you stuck. So let's hop in. And we kind of trying to break these down into three main categories, which is what's in it for me? Like why bother doing this? What's required? How do you make them happen? Uh, how do you how do you get conversion campaigns set up? And then very specifics. How do I do different pieces of that? And you know, like I said, answer common questions. So let's start in with what's in it for me. Why? It sounds like work, Andrew. Why bother doing this? We're going to have to change stuff. I know. What's what's <laughs> in it? Up. So get techie. Let's get techie. What we've seen across, I don't know. I was trying to think of how many 300, 400 plus conversion campaigns. Yeah, there's a lot. Over, yeah, for a while now, all, pretty much always higher quality traffic with a same or less money, which mm-hmm. is super cool. More conversions, yep. so more leads. Um, I think, yeah, at IBS, I talked about one example where a day, like the next week, it was like two and a half times more leads from the same spend. And all that changed was the conversion, switching to conversion campaigns. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, branding to the right audience regardless of the clicks, which that one is fun. Yeah, and then, so it, it, it's just targeting people so well using this method that yeah. even the ones who don't click are the right ones to be exposed to it. So right. even though we just talked, was it last week, about branding kind of in, mm-hmm. in depth and our feelings 
hands on it. In this case, it's it's the free prize inside. It's the cherry on top of, wow, I'm still sending the creative that I want to the right people. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, what started this conversation was staying compliant with current and probably upcoming um, rules, which I'm sure there will be. There's always something up. So Facebook yep. friendly. Facebook wants us to use this. Yeah. So twice the amount of leads and or, you know, twice the amount of traffic, but still getting it for uh, the same total spend. That sounds like it's probably worth a few hours, maybe even of your time <laughs> to make these adjustments <laughs> and get that. things set up. Yeah. Worth a month of time. Definitely. You <laughs> may or may not be able to do all this on your own. It depends on how much access you have to your own site and your back end. You might have to work with partners, but generally speaking, a couple hours should should get you there if mm-hmm. you're generally already familiar with Help Business Manager and everything works. So yeah. um, Becca, give us a quick overview of kind of what, what's required and then we'll, we'll dive into them a little bit more. Sure. What do we need to get this stuff set up? So first, we need the Pixel to be installed on your website. Got it. And that's so, Facebook specific, right? Yeah. It's not, so you, not everything's going to necessarily use a Pixel. Yeah. So you have to grab your Pixel from Facebook and send it over to your web developer if you don't have access to drop a code in the header yourself. Yep. And that's going to go on? It's going to go in your website in the header. So that's every page. Yeah. So it's it's just like the uh, analytics tag. It is. It's I, Yeah. And it can either go above or below the analytics tag. It doesn't matter. Yep. Yep. And if you're using Tag Manager, which was a part of our question of the week last week, then this is one of those scenarios that we talked about. Of if you have access to your Tag Manager account, you may be able to drop in this code without having to say, excuse me, web developer, can you please add this uh, for me? So that's And it should take cool. like a minute. If you had good Google Tag Manager access, it would take you, you know, 30 seconds. Yep. So you're maybe developer a couple minutes. So don't mm-hmm. let them give you a hard time about this. It sounds, it sounds scary. It sounds hard. It, like Andrew's like 15 seconds of someone's time who knows what they're yeah. doing to drop that in. Yep. All right. And then what, what else we need? Then you have to define the conversion goal within Facebook. So they don't just automatically pick them. You have to tell Facebook what you want to track. Define your custom conversion and then the minimum number of conversions in order to allow the AI to optimize leads. That's I like, that was wrong. that like, I feel like it changes depending yeah. on it does I change. I mean, we've heard different numbers, but generally like 200-ish conversions has to occur in a month's time. Yes, in a month. Yeah, ideal. So, so it's, there's that ideal word. So it's like, well, what right. if it's less? What if it's more? And yeah. More is better. It gives more data right. for the AI to analyze. But when we think about leads and when you talk about defining a conversion goal, Becca, the first thing everyone's going to think of is, oh, I want a lead. Uh, and that's great. Yeah. If you have 200 form completions in a month, form completions, right? Everyone, well, not everyone. A lot of people are going to have 200 leads a month uh, from larger builders, but they're going to come from the phone, from text message, from chat, from uh, Zillow, Trulia, from New Home Source, all, like all the different places are coming in. You need 200 form completions going to your online sales team in order for it to really have good data. Because we, we've, well, let's let, yeah, let's go right into it. Andrew, we have folks that we've been able to say that conversion goal is a lead, a form fill on the builder's website from yes. social media traffic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's worked out, I would say, splendidly. Uh, I mean, you're getting crazy low. We're not even going to say the, the amount, but crazy low cost per form completion on the builder's site, which is dramatically different than saying really cheap Facebook lead ad forms where they're submitting information from Facebook. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Those leads are spending like, I think uh, last week I looked at it about four minutes on the site be- on average before they turn before the they convert. Right. So not so, 10 seconds on Facebook. Totally different level of quality. It's not automatically yeah. being filled in. Right. It's so, but that one works great. And then you did another test, small dollar amount with another builder who mm-hmm. just to kind of see like, okay, do we really need 200? And it didn't turn out so well. No, it was terrible. <laughs> I'm, like, what is, I'm like, this is garbage. What is happening here? Um, but part of that is because we, so we use conversion camp 
campaigns all the time for everything. For coming soon communities, a landing page, because the conversion rate is so high and mm-hmm. leads start coming in quickly, it works well, even though there's not that many leads. Um, because there's, Makes sense. So I think there's, there's nowhere else. Balance. There's nothing else for you to do. Correct. Right. There's this, there, like, you convert. my theory, it's not like Facebook tells us this stuff. If Facebook starts to get leads quickly, the first day, say four, which coming soon community, that's not, that's not too many, but there's four, they could very quickly keep the moment going. But if they get mm-hmm. four over a, I don't know, right. say 72 hour period, Facebook has mm-hmm. been guessing for 72 hours trying to, they're not guessing, but they got hundred people on the first yeah. day. No one turned into a lead. There's like, no feedback. Okay, that didn't work. There's yeah. no feedback. Yeah. So I think there's this momentum thing that has to happen for the AI to understand the right people. Um. So yeah, I was, I was disappointed a little bit. Yep. Like, oh man, I'm not the ad doctor anymore. Am I? I've changed my name. But the first <laughs> thing I'm like, this thing is ridiculous. Like this is like insane how yeah. well it was, was working. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So for those of you who don't have 200 form completions in a month, when we go back up a step to defining your conversion goal, that can't slash shouldn't be a lead on a form completion. It needs to be something else. Something less specific targeting than, you know, we've used in the past. It's just, you have to think back to yourself and say, what activities define what I think is a good unit of traffic, even if they don't fill out a form? What are the, or, or another way, maybe the things that lead up to filling yeah. out exactly. We can, it's not a secret. You can talk about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like if somebody's searching on the page for a home or looking at an inventory home or a plan or things like that. Yeah, it could be specific pages, could be the amount of pages, could be the amount of time. There's lots of different things, depending on the platform that, that you can choose as a, as a different conversion. Those of you familiar with analytic conversions, it's a similar idea. You can create anything you want to, to be an analytic conversion or a goal. And in, in, in that world, we say, mm, page views, not a conversion. We want actual leads coming from the site via form completion, phone call, text message, chat, etc. But when you're talking about training the artificial intelligence of these different platforms, it is good to start training it on what are these behaviors that signal this person may, if not now, at some point soon, be likely to convert. And then the last step that's required is just a whole lot of trust but verify, right? We can't just set it and forget it. Not the Ronco food dehydrator. <laughs> and it is smart, but oh it's smart based upon what we're telling it to do. So we may not be telling it to do something very smart because we want to just test something or try something, but we also might just be wrong in general. And so you have to, especially early on, really watch it closely because it can do some things that are a little bit questionable. But once, you, once you're in the groove and it's working, it's probably going to keep working and keep getting better. For sure. So UTMs would be a good, like you're using Google UTMs, mm. you could then check in mm-hmm. analytics. Really could go before and after, even though ideally tests are done at the same time, not week one and then week two, but week one versus week one. But yeah, that'd be, you definitely have UTMs. And then you could go, look, that whole day you gave me to do these conversion campaigns, look at the result. You could then have the report showing how awesome you are because you switched yep. everything over. And specifically in the UTM, what you're talking about is the campaign identifier Correct. portion of that. So, so say yeah. yep, source is Facebook, medium is paid social or whatever that you guys use. And then campaign could be like submarket conversion campaign or just conversion campaign. Yep. And that way you can you can track it all super quickly. So let's get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty and, or the places that people are going to get stuck. So first, they're going to say, wait, how do I find my Facebook pixel or the tracking code or whatever it is I need to add? And the answer is different for different places. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, you're going to find that in the business manager underneath the hamburger menu and then pixels, which is under assets, I believe. Um, in LinkedIn, it's as part of the campaign manager. Twitter, same. Twitter and Pinterest, both. It's in the same overall platform of where your ads are being run. And there's going to be some type of analytic code, which hopefully you already have a lot of that stuff on there. Why? Because that's how you do remarketing on all those platforms. It has to be able to know who's been on the site in order to do remarketing. And then in Google for uh, Google ads, paid search, because this is also a thing for paid search now. Um, 
do you need just analytic code, Andrew, or you need a specific thing for Google Ads? So this one, I've, we've never really talked about this, but so the perfect scenario is using the A, the ad, the Google Ads tag, um, yeah. which is not common at all. Like that's really kind of mm-hmm. old school, but you get quicker feedback. So Google can then optimize better. But the analytics tag does, it works, I'm sure just as well. It works. Um, so you're pretty much set up already. You better have analytics running. I'm sure everyone does this. And you better have access. <laughs> and you better have access. Um, but yeah, so there are, yeah, you're, you're referencing like the conversion campaigns within Google, which are. Yeah, they're, they're coming to everywhere. Now they're yeah. not all going to work the same no, and they're all not, not going to be as smart or as good depending on how much the platform knows about its users, depending upon privacy settings and rules and just how good they are at creating an AI tool. But I mean, I, when I logged into LinkedIn the other day, I was like, yep, we're announcing conversion campaigns. They're here. Yay. Exciting. Get excited. It's okay. You're trying to jump on that bandwagon as fast as possible because once you do it, it, it is addictive. It's like, this is really, this is really good. <laughs> Why can't I do this everywhere else? And it's so, so much quicker to get, we haven't got to yeah. like the actual steps doing, but once you're set up, it's like, like, okay, we're done. Easy. Um, yep. Sort of. So it is more. Efficient. That's installing the code. Don't let that be the thing that trips you up of any of this stuff. Cause that's half of it's on somebody else, but you have to either just tell them to put it on there or find the code and send it to them. Let's talk about defining a conversion goal and we'll stay just specifically on Facebook, Instagram on this one, just because of the complexity. We go on for a lot longer than we have time today. For sure. Where do we go to set up the conversion goals? If they're, you know, especially when they're not going to be a form completion. Okay, so if you're in your ads manager account, click the hamburger menu and then go to custom conversions. All right. So a long time ago, the ad doctor shared with us that Facebook's pixel was going to start creating some conversion or events, not conversions, but events on its own. It was going to just notice like, oh, that looks like a form completion or, oh, that looks like mm-hmm. they're doing something good. They're adding to the cart. You could, that's why I say for lead forms, you sometimes can get away with just using that automatic event and plugging that in in your custom conversion. But if you want to do something different, like number of pages visited or a specific page, you're definitely going to go to that custom conversions option underneath events manager within the business manager. <laughs> There's so many manager, manager, manager. Yeah, yeah. The um, yep. so they call that a standard event when it's not one that is custom. So if it's user defined by us, it's a custom event. Mm-hmm. And if it's one that they pick up because they could read, submit, or contact us, and they realize that it's form because they're smart, track everything, then they'll just put that under its own category and make it part of that you know Facebook line conversion. Hopefully that makes sense. When you mess around in there a bunch, like yeah. you, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah you'll gotcha. you'll figure it out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. If not, email Andrew at doconvert.com yeah. and he'll spend all of his free time getting back. To you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I will, um, I'll work for monsters. Send me a 24 pack of monster ultras. Yeah, oh, right. All right. Let's talk about setting up the creative. Is that is that process different going in and actually building out the campaign? So we've got the pixel installed. We've defined what we want the, the success marker or custom conversion to be. The last step is just make the ad. Let's quickly go through the campaign ad set and creative and talk about anything that needs to be adjusted differently for this type of. I think we just knock out the actual ad itself because that doesn't change the ad. Yep. If you think campaign ad set and add those three levels. The ad can be exactly how it was before. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you, you could even use if you, I think we have some of these still running. If you've used like an engagement based ad and there's like a thousand likes on there and there's mm-hmm. a link in there, you know, make sure there's a link in case you went crazy and ran an ad without a link being really weird. <laughs> um, you could use that ad in the conversion campaign, and yeah. like, which would be yeah, pretty fancy setup. Um, really but fancy. Then it, it, looks, it looks really cool. But yes, yeah, so the ad set will be, that's where the magic is. So we'll, yeah. we'll spend some time on the ad set right now. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just 
just keep working backwards. So the ad creative exactly can, can be exactly the same. The ad set, we have to make a couple adjustments, which really just comes down to you have to select that custom conversion as your goal. And it's going to be near the top of your ad set uh, window when you do that. There will be, what, is, what do we want to have happen here? That box, you will click in and it'll show you the custom conversions you've already defined and some basic stuff. Um, if you don't have anything combined, but you have to select the custom conversions you already created, put it in there. And that window, though, will only show up if, what do you what do you have to do in the campaign level, Becca? You have to select conversions as your campaign objective. Exactly. So there you go. Soup to nuts. That's it. Uh, yeah. Now you have something to do this weekend <laughs> or whenever you're listening <laughs> to the, the podcast. That you're done. There's, there's really no reason not to be doing this. It's not overly complex, especially when you've got the podcast to reference and we're going to work on some, some blog articles and other things as well in the coming period of time or a period of time yet to, to be decided because it's spring is busy, but we're going to get some stuff out there for you. Is there any drawbacks that I'm missing, guys, to conversion campaigns? I think people might be wondering, like, you kind of left something out and I felt that way, but you really didn't. So you selected the conversion mm -hmm. and then with Facebook's new rules, you can't change age. You cannot change gender. Oh, yeah, that's good. No, we did miss. We did miss something. Well, I mean, you did. We did, but didn't because really like there's nothing else to other than the geography. You don't change anything else. Like you leave yes. targeting yeah. wide open. So we, yeah, I guess we did, but we didn't like you, you just leave it there because we're, yep, you're going to target 18 to 65. You're going to target men and women and you're going to add at least a 15 mile radius or larger. And if you saw my talk at the Builder Show, you'll see that larger sometimes a lot of times is significantly better yes. because the AI is that yeah. smart to learn as long as enough traffic is coming through. I would say that's the only thing is if you're running a conversion campaign and you're trying to spend, say, 50 bucks a month on something that I don't know. I don't think we've done Ooh, that. I don't. Um, I think. But I, I know a lot of you no. boosters out there, you like to you like to boost stuff. Um, <laughs> this may not work for you. I'm just no, thinking out loud. No. I, don't, I don't I don't think it will. And if anyone has a I have to respect all budgets, but if, if you're spending more at Chick-fil-A or Starbucks than a Facebook campaign for community, I will have a, I will talk to you and find you. <laughs> I've seen the pictures of people at a top 25 home building company whose social budget for the entire month was like 250, 300 bucks. Okay. It's still still out there. They're not. So again, yeah, no additional targeting, no likely to move, no Zillow, nothing. No, no, yeah. no, nothing else. That's so always the only thing you would still probably do. And even this, I'm a little less like you must do this than I used to be. You still probably want to take out everything but the, the news feeds for both Facebook and Instagram. Oh, right? We yeah. still want to focus on the, on the best yeah. quality location. However, it's not as bad as it used to be if you leave it all in there. The AI knows who it needs to show to. Yeah. Uh, if you, and, and where. And we, we've, we test everything, of course, and we've tested, well, what if Facebook's entirely in charge? And they'll send, you know, so there's like Marketplace where I'm like, eh, I don't really like Marketplace ads because they're looking at like, I don't know, a picnic, <laughs> a picnic bench table. And then they're like, oh, look, here's this half million dollar house or million dollar house. Doesn't seem right. But they don't yeah. even like put it in there. They're like one impression. At, so the, you're AI. saying the AI knows what's garbage. That's, they that's know what's garbage. Yeah. They know I'd no imagine. one cares about the right hand no or Marketplace. Or, yeah. File that under T for trash. <laughs> but imagine if you're selling like like tools or DIY, like a different maybe e-commerce product. Right. They might put you in right. Marketplace all day long and it works really well. Exactly. Um, but they know the context of the ad because they're reading what's in the ad yep. and combining that with the actions of people. Yeah, it's super, super cool. This is, it still blows my mind. All right. This is crazy. You have homework. There's officially homework from an episode of Market Proof Marketing. Go make sure your conversion campaigns are set up and running as quickly as possible. You will thank us. 